This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Shayla Farzan. John, as climate change brings hotter temperatures and shifting patterns of precipitation, Science Friday has talked a lot about how that affects our physical structures, agriculture, and even physical health. But what about our behavior and mental health? Yeah, I assume here you're not talking about just trying to drive less or anxiously checking your weather apps all the time. Yeah, in this case, we might actually be responding to climate change in ways that we're not even aware of, like individual-level violence or society-level conflict. Dr. Marshall Burke researches this question at Stanford University, specifically the question of how hotter temperatures and more erratic rainfall might be tipping us toward more violent behavior. He's also found that this is very much a historic pattern, and we may see it worsen as our entire climate regime shifts. Marshall, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Great to be here. So you've done research looking pretty far back into history for a possible connection between major climate shifts and conflicts over the last 12,000 years. How strong of a connection did you find there? What we see when we look uh, far back in history is we certainly see societies that have thrived when the climate has changed, but we also see examples of the opposite. We see iconic societies uh, throughout the world that have really struggled in the face of either slow-moving climate change or rapid-onset climate change. And we see many examples in the historical record where societies have really fallen apart um, and, and sort of disappeared off the map when faced with dramatic Uh, climate shocks. Some classic examples that we've seen in the the collapse of the Mayan Empire and the Yucatan, the collapse of Angkor Wat in Southeast Asia, both followed protracted uh, periods of drought. So so many, many years where things were historically dry. Uh, And what uh, archaeologists uh, and anthropologists have shown uh, in these settings is that uh, these societies were trying to do their best. So Angkor Wat uh, is very well studied and they had a very extensive network of canals that would bring water in from miles and miles away to the city. And what they showed is in these protracted droughts, you see these canals uh, silting in, unable to get water into the city. You see the hydrologists in these cities actually responding, trying to move the canals, but really just being unable to keep up with the, the rapid climate change that they experienced. The research that you're describing here involves working with a lot of historical and paleoclimate data from things like sediment cores and tree rings. How can you be sure that this connection between climate and conflict actually exists? How do we know it's not explained by some other factor that we're not looking at? Yeah, that's a great question. And as researchers, this is the fundamental question that we're always worried about. Are we actually looking at the effects of climate or are we looking at the effects of something else that was going on? Uh, So these very deep uh, historical looks, the you know, looking at ancient societies, often it is a data challenge. Um, scientists are putting together uh, all the data sources they can from various climate proxies, as you said, you know, tree rings, uh, cores, uh, various things, sediments, and trying to reconstruct what the climate was, uh, you know, again as best they can. Uh, similarly, on the on the societal side. Right? We don't have perfect records of what was going on in these societies. They have to be reconstructed by, from the various data sources that we can put together. So there's absolutely uncertainty as to whether climate was uh, the only cause here or even the main cause of some of the collapse. Uh, and, and I think that's true in more recent times as well, even where we have a lot more data. There where I think we're able to isolate the role of climate a little more specifically 
Uh, that said, climate never acts alone, right? It often amplifies other things that uh, is going on in the societies. So the defense establishment in the U.S. Uh, calls climate a threat multiplier, right? A force that multiplies other threats that might already exist. And so I think that's what we see in the deep historical data as well. So maybe not necessarily that the climate is the sole factor that's driving these conflicts or that's, you know, pushing these conflicts forward, but that it's a contributing factor. Yeah, that's right. A thumb on the scale. So let's move towards the present day. You've also found connections between climate extremes and more recent conflicts between groups. What kinds of contemporary conflicts can we trace back to the climate? Using more recent data, we can actually take a pretty granular look at many different types of conflict. So we can look at individual level conflict, um, things like homicide or violent assault, individuals harming one another. Uh, or we can look at group level conflict. So we can look at when groups fight each other. So think of communal violence or civil conflict, even up to the large scale civil wars that unfortunately still happen in parts of the world. And uh, what's from a research perspective, what's nice here is we actually have very good data in some parts of the world on where these events occur, when they occur, how serious they were. Uh, and we also have very good data on what's going on in the climate system. Uh, was it dry or wet? Was it hot or cold? Uh, and so we have a lot of data to really be able to line these things up and try to understand, okay, was it climate uh, that caused these events or was it uh, something else? And here again, we see consistent evidence that that changes in climate. And in particular, we mean more extreme rainfall, typically dry, sometimes wet, uh, but, uh, but higher temperatures is where we see the strongest signal. So higher temperatures uh, can induce many different types of conflict. Individual level conflict, again, clear links to more violent assault, more homicides in places we can measure it. Uh, and clear increases in civil conflict. Hotter temperatures appear to increase the risk of civil conflict uh, in many parts of the world. Is it possible for us in this research to kind of put a finger on a specific reason here or factor that's driving this? Like, for instance, food scarcity that's driven by climate extremes, like some reason why these climatic events would, would increase conflict even now in modern day. Uh, so this is a question about mechanism. What is the mechanism that links changes in climate to conflict? And there's likely multiple mechanisms at play. So uh, one that has been studied and I think for which there is growing evidence is uh, the role that climate plays in shaping economic conditions. Uh, and then when economic conditions change, how that might change people's incentives to start or join a rebellion. So uh, when uh, rainfall is more extreme or when temperatures increase, uh, this can worsen economic conditions. So imagine you're uh, a farmer, uh, your agricultural yields drop when it gets very high or when there's no rainfall. Uh, and this can happen to millions of people in a given country in a given time. Now, certainly not all of these people or very, very few of them would even think of joining a conflict, an existing conflict, but a few might, right? A few might be driven to that extreme just because they have no other option. Uh, and we see in the data that you don't need that many people to join a conflict for one of these uh, to occur. And so it, that appears to be one of the mechanisms, climate uh, worsening economic conditions and that changing people's incentives to join or start conflicts. Economic conditions are certainly not the only mechanism, and they do not explain what we see in the individual level data. So what we see there is you get a hot day, 
on that day, you see increases in violent conflict, you see increases in homicide, you see increases in domestic violence. And that's unlikely explained by changes in economic conditions. Our, our incomes just don't change that quickly uh, with temperature. It's much more likely explained by a physiological, a human physiological response to hot temperatures. I think this is intuitive on some level. How do we feel when it's really hot? If you get really hot, you're wearing a jacket, you feel uh, grumpy, <laughs> right? You might feel irritable. Um, and what psychologists have shown in the lab for decades now is that you can induce aggression in humans if you put them in a room and you heat up the room. <laughs> you can make them irritable and act more aggressively. Uh, and indeed, that's what it looks like in the data. What we see is that a small number of people get irritated enough that they are more likely to carry out violence. We've been talking a lot about the negative effects of climate change on human behavior, but is there anything good that we can pull from the data here? I think so. Uh, again, we should not be climate determinists here. We shouldn't think that climate is destiny. Uh, we have many examples uh, in the past, communal level examples, where people come together and share resources during climate shocks. This has been documented by anthropologists, by economists, in many different settings around the world, uh, all the way up to societal level examples, where again, societies have responded. Uh, responded to and, and survived, been resilient to uh, really negative climate events. Um, and so absolutely, we shouldn't, uh, this is not just a gloom and doom story. Uh, the climate problem is caused by human choices and human behaviors. The solutions will be also due to human choices and human behaviors, and, and those are under our control. And we can absolutely choose to work together, and, and we've seen examples of that in the past. Yeah, along a similar vein there. I mean, now that we know that there is this connection between climate and human conflict, can we use that knowledge in some way to do something to help alleviate that heightened risk? Are there, are there any solutions here? That's absolutely my goal as a researcher. So in studying this, uh, we hope to, number one, understand the relationships, and then number two, use that understanding to help guide interventions that will make us more resilient as the climate changes. So one thing we see in the group level uh, con group conflict setting is that certain government programs, in particular social safety nets, appear to reduce or even break the link between climate and conflict. So there's a very nice study in India by Themo Fetzer, not done, not done in my group, um, that looks at the rollout of a large Indian social safety net program uh, and shows that uh, once people were able to access the social safety net program, basically it guaranteed them work uh, and a wage when, when there was no rain or when agricultural productivity failed, uh, so they could get a job and they were backstopped against uh, really bad outcomes when, when the climate worsened. What that did was completely break the link between uh, rainfall and communal violence uh, in this Indian setting. So this is right now our best piece of evidence that social safety nets and broader sort social support programs uh, can really help build climate resilience uh, and reduce the likelihood that violence breaks out when uh, climate takes a turn for the worse. Hmm, that's interesting. So there, there is some evidence then that there are these solution-based programs that can help kind of erase that connection between climate and conflict then. Absolutely. And there's other examples, too. So we can think of insurance programs. It doesn't have to be government programs. Uh, 
you know, drought tolerant crops, again, uh, all the ways we can think of to help bolster people's incomes uh, when the climate worsens. I think we'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Burke. This has been such an interesting conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Marshall Burke is an associate professor of Earth System Sciences at Stanford University in Stanford, California. I'm Shayla Farzan. And I'm John Dankosky, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Shayla, we've been talking about how climate change may encourage us toward more intergroup conflict or even interpersonal violence. Which researchers are still trying to isolate exactly why either of those things happens. I want to take a look at a new piece of research that looks at something a little bit different, mental health, and the intergenerational toll of a single stressful event like a hurricane. Like Superstorm Sandy, which happened 10 years ago next month on the East Coast, and which some researchers have found was made worse by climate change. Dr. Yoko Nomura researches stressful events in pregnancy and how they may touch the mental health of children after they're born. And in her research of children whose mothers were pregnant during that very stressful, catastrophic event, she found some pretty dramatic results. Dr. Nomura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about this study. And you looked at the children of women who were pregnant when Superstorm Sandy hit the Northeast. So you looked at the children after they were born, and these children ended up having very high rates of diagnoses of psychiatric disorders. Maybe you can talk about the types of problems that these kids were were showing. So we specifically uh, did structure the interview for psychiatric diagnosis, and we focus on the disorders which are prevalent in young children, young age. So they are specifically anxiety disorder, phobia, de- depression, and conduct behavioral problems such as ADHD, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorders. My sample have a high rate of disorders because I have a children who are fetus during Superstorm Sandy or f- children who are already born, uh, which is our control subject. So both of them, even if there is a control versus exposure group, they are really at high risk. So their rate of disorder are higher than the general population. Even so, children who are exposed to Superstorm Sandy in utero have about two to three times higher rate of disorders. Specifically, five-fold increased risk for anxiety disorders, and about 16-fold increased risk of depression, and about four-fold increased risk of disruptive behavioral disorders. So help us, if you would, understand the connection between the stress experience of a mother during pregnancy and what happens in a child's brain. I mean, what would cause a child to develop anxiety or depression as a result of that, that stress? The short answer is we don't know. We know the association. We know if you are exposed to superstorm sandy or any sort of disaster or stressful condition in utero, lead to an elevated risk of psychiatric disorders, which are related to emotional reg- regulations. This study doesn't really investigate the causes, underlying mechanism of the increased risk. What I do know is placenta is a key. The children who are exposed to Superstorm Sandy in neutral is connected to their mother through uh, placenta. 
you know, mother's experience, mother's nutrient, mother's oxygen, mother's everything is passed on to the fetus. And amanzo is a stress hormone. So mothers who are exposed to traumatic stress produces stress hormone. And that stress hormone is going to be passed on to the fetus. So if we know that these events are potentially setting up kids who are born afterward to have extra mental health challenges, what do you think, doctor, the solution is? People tend to think disaster is short-lived. When it happens, it happens, and people are able to recover from it without really knowing there is a long-term consequences of a trauma during pregnancy. So what I am advocating for now is to focus on strengthening the community, investing in the community health, having an idea, having a backup plan, having a safety, safety net by itself is a stress moderator. You are going to feel safer because of the fact that something is there for you in case something happens. And it's not fair for mm-hmm. us to just put everything on pregnant women or teachers or healthcare providers. Yoko Nomura is a neuroscientist at Queens College in New York City. She studies child development. Thank you so much for this research and thank you for your time on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me.